If you have a Bible, open up to John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible this morning, feel free to grab one of the Black Pew Bibles, and you'll find it on page 833. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, or page 833 in the Pew Bible. I can't tell you how good it is to hear this congregation to sing like that a cappella, oh, come, let us adore him. That was fantastic. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In his book, A Brief History of Time, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking wrote these words, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, it tells us this theory is not an abstraction, but a person, Jesus Christ. Did you notice in the first five verses, we learn four magnificent truths about who Jesus is. Number one, that Jesus is God, verses one, and you compare that with verse 14, that all things were made through him in verse three. Logan, go back to the very beginning of the slide. That's why it's doing that. It's set to the very last portion. There you go. Go all the way to the top. Push that one there. There you go. Hit play. And then let's skip a couple slides. There we go. Okay, we're all there. Now, uh, verse 3, all things were made through him. In verse 4, in him was life and light. And then finally in verse 5, the light shines and darkness does not overcome it. Now, I know it's Christmas morning, and so traditionally you should expect me to be preaching out of uh, Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel and talking about wise men, shepherds, angels, Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. But because John's gospel is not kind of covered over or glossed over with the sentimentality that Matthew and Luke's gospel um, can sometimes be this time of year, I thought talking from John's gospel would help us feel the theological punch that Christmas actually is and appreciate it a bit afresh. Secondly, the reason I wanted to look at John's gospel was, if you know Matthew and Luke's gospel, he takes us, they take us back to the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, but did you notice that John goes back even further? Look back at the text, that very first phrase, verse 1, in the beginning. Now, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, that ought to make you think of another particular book of the Bible, doesn't it? It should, because there are only two books in the entire Bible of all 66 books that begin in that exact phrase in the beginning, that the book is Genesis and John's gospel. 
So if you were a Jew and the original recipients of the Gospel of John were Jews, they would have immediately thought of the very beginning of Genesis. And as I said last night, as I've been teaching you, when you read the Gospel writers, you always have to ask the question, why did they include this? Because as John tells us in his Gospels, there were so many things Jesus said and did that if they recorded them all, the books of the world could not contain it all. So when they wrote the Gospels, they were culling from vast amounts of material, of events, of things they had seen and witnessed and heard, and so they can't put it all there. And so they're hand-picking things to tell a story, to tell a narrative, to create a picture of Jesus they want you to see. And so why does John include this? Well, it's because he wants his readers to know that there is a new creation happening, and it all centers on Jesus. And in these short 14 verses, it speaks of the significance of Jesus Christ, God from eternity past, coming into time and space, the light of life that darkness cannot and does not overcome, and whom by which our response to Him determines, we see in verse 12, one's eternal destinies. John makes it clear in these 14 verses, you can receive Him, you can reject Him, but you certainly can't ignore Jesus Christ. Now, I only have time this morning um, to focus on one verse, so it's going to be verse 14, arguably one of the most significant verses in, in John's entire gospel. As a matter of fact, he will spend the remaining 20 and a half chapters unpacking the significance of this verse. So significant we are still celebrating his Christmas morning, the event we commemorate his birth on, two millennia later. Let's look at that verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God becoming man. God becoming man to be with us, Emmanuel. God becoming man to live like us, to live with us, to live for us. Friends, of all the miraculous events and the historical um, deeds, or of all the miraculous deeds and historical events the Bible records, none compares to the incarnation that God became flesh. It staggers the mind. I mean, oceans parting, bushes burning, serpents talking, hail falling, none of that compares to what we read about here in these gospel accounts. God became man. The incarnation, it has been said, is the grand miracle that the Creator would enter creation, that the infinite would become an infant, that majesty becomes man, that the divine would become dependent. There's no parallel to this event. To think about the birth of Christ and the situation that necessitated such a miracle, to think about the birth of Christ is to think about the very irony of humanity itself. So noble on the one hand, yet also so vile. So strong, yet we are so weak. So beautiful as God's creation, yet so scarred. Nothing less than such a divine human paradox is sufficient for the irony that is humanity. And notice when John talks about Jesus or the Word becoming flesh, he uses a particular word that makes us think about human frailty and vulnerability. We see the prophet Isaiah saying something similar to this in Isaiah 46, that all flesh is grass. It's temporary. It is fragile. It is effervescence. 
And John, and back in John, the verb became in the Greek refers to the transformation of a thing or a person from one thing and condition permanently into another that it wasn't before. And we know, by the way, John's writing this in the tense of the verb, this is an irreversible act. The act of God's self-humbling to become man will be that situation forever. In other words, in Jesus Christ, God is forever made man. I don't know if you stop to think about that. That forever, since this event, God is forever made man in this incarnation. In light of that, I just want to give you four brief implications of what Christmas means based on John 14 here. So here they are. Number one, the birth of Christ that we celebrate this morning directly addresses our need for salvation. Now, I know, especially outside of the church, but unfortunately even sometimes in the church, the, the, the notion that we would need salvation isn't all that popular. After all, when we look around ourselves, we see our accomplishments, we see our technology, we see our medicines, we see our wealth, we see and we sense our value from these very things. And in fact, if we're going to be honest, if you talk to people out there, the only thing they think we need salvation from is the idea that we think we need salvation, right? That's the thing they think we need saving from because we see all the accomplishments we have, all our technology, all our wealth. And we have value because of these things. But friends, if we're going to be honest and we kind of pull the curtain back and look at those things, they reveal a different picture entirely. Our accomplishments, our achievements, far from putting us in a place to be more compassionate and caring for fellow men and women around us, they often build us up with more pride. The swelling of our portfolios, the fact that we close the business deals, that we get the contracts, that we have the education, we have those achievements, even mundane things we like to boast about. Like that annoying bumper sticker on the cars, my kid is smarter than your kid, right? You've seen it, right? But it says this, my child's honor roll student at Golden Hill Elementary, right? Where I come from, that's just saying your kid's smarter than my kid. My point is simply this, from the major to the mundane, our accomplishments don't make us love other people better. It makes us different from them, better than them. And our technologies we use for perverse ends. Two words can prove it. Social media, Right? And our, our medicines only reveal a persistent fear that we have about our mortality. And our wealth, we worship our wealth. So all these things that we derive value from, they just hide our fears. And our fears just reveal that deep down, we know something's not right. We're not okay. Now, you may not think we need saving, but certainly by thinking about that, you realize we do need to be changed. But if you also know anything about human history... Humans don't change, right? Our technology changes, our currency changes, the things we value might change, but the heart does not change. And the Bible says because the heart is enslaved to sin. And because of our sin, we cannot change ourselves, let alone save ourselves. Only God can do that. An early church theologian by the name of Anselm said this in the 11th century, that since it was man who turned his back on God, which is the essence of sin, it's man's responsibility. It's man who needs to make amends and restore that relationship. So here's what he said in his own words. Only God can save us. But conversely, since it is we who have sinned, the repairing of our relationship with God must come from our side, from within our human life. Thus, only God can save us, but only we should. Since no one except God can make satisfaction for our sins, 
and one except man is, no one except man is responsible to make it. It is necessary for a God-man to make it. Put simply, only God is able to restore the relationship, but he's not responsible. Only man is responsible, but he's not able. So we have a dilemma. The only solution is that a God-man that is both, that who is both responsible as man and able as God is necessary to breach the relationship. And that's exactly why we have the incarnation. And according to John's gospel, it is how we respond to him, as verse 12 says, all who received him, who believed in his name, who have the right to become children of God. So the first implication of John 1.14 is our salvation. That's what we're celebrating here this morning. That's what Christmas is about. But there's a second implication of that, and that is dignity. What I mean by this is the incarnation is the, the ultimate significance of human existence. Our human life was truly the vehicle for God's life. Our flesh contained the Word. Our humanity was home for the one who is forever. A couple weeks ago, well, okay, let me back up. I'm thinking about what Greg talked about, that, that hymn. There's a Christmas carol that we typically sing, Oh, come all ye faithful, or come let us adore him. And there's the line in there that Greg highlighted. And I wanted to highlight it because if you don't have a, a thorough understanding of the gospel or the Christian worldview, you can read that line and go, what? What, what is this thing talking about? The, the verse is, God of God, light of lights, behold, he abhors not the virgin's womb. The reason this is in the sermon this morning is as I was kind of thinking about it, I was reading some blog posts, and I came across an interesting blog post of a father who was hacked off. I mean, he was ticked. He went to see his daughter play in a violin concert at some kind of church, and they sang this, this Christmas carol, and he read the lyrics, Behold, he abhors not the virgin's womb, and he said angrily, Why would anyone ever write such a disgusting line? Right? Okay, so basically what the line is saying is that God did not look down on his creation so much that becoming one of them was below his station. Okay? So the blogger was shocked, offended, that, that we would even conceive that human beings might not be worthy of such an act. Here's the thing that's funny about this. As, as I kind of thought about what, what he was experiencing, and it became clear to me that the very value that the, the, the reason this man finds offense is because of a value that he doesn't realize is intractably Christian, even though he denies the very belief that creates the value. In other words, he was assuming, assuming that human value and dignity and human rights is a universally accepted value from all cultures and all time. And that here's the problem with Christianity. It's always making us feel bad. It's always a downer kind of thing. And here's the evidence of it. What he didn't realize is his value that human beings have dignity and have a, a, a worth is intractably Christian. Friends, our modern concept of human rights comes from the fertile soil of the Christian worldview that every man, all men, are made in God's image. We have breathed this air for so long 
We don't even realize where it comes from. And even those who consciously reject the Christian belief imbibe the Christian values and get offended when they hear the Christian belief that actually supports the value. This idea of human rights, as, uh, uh, this idea of rights didn't come into existence, into conversation until 1514. The Roman Catholic priest, Father Bartolome de la Casas, when he saw what the Spanish conquistadors were doing to the natives of the New World, he said, this is an atrocity. We don't have the right as an empire or as a nation to do these to other people. And when asked why, Father de la Casa said, because of the Imago Dei in all men, we all believe this. But what we haven't done is taking this to the way we interact with other cultures and nation states. And so speaking to the Spanish crown, he made the case for what we now understand to be human rights. And it didn't come from anywhere else but from Genesis chapter 1 and the gospel narratives that all humanity was made in the image of God and that existence was dignified that God himself would take on the mantle of human flesh. Friends, the world we live in is intractably Christian and people don't even realize it. We have a value and dignity, not because of our technologies and our wealth and all those things, but because our creator accorded it to us. You won't get the notion of human rights from science. It cannot give it to you. It doesn't even have the tools to conceive of such metaphysical categories. That's all it can do. Science, all it can do is talk about the empirical reality of the world we can see, hear, feel, and touch. Human rights is none of those things. You won't bump into a human right at, in the middle of the night. You won't trip over it. You, know, you won't crash into a human right. Science cannot help us understand human rights. And if you think we get these from religion, that is not true. Islam, Hinduism, Shintoism, Buddhism do not teach the inherent worth of individuals. I know. I was raised in a Shinto household. I was taught by Buddhist monks. They never taught about the value of being a person. It is only Christianity that teaches that God himself took on the mantle of flesh, thereby justifying that human beings as a creature have dignity and value. Christmas morning affirms human worth because the Creator entered into the creation and took on our flesh. Third implication of Christmas from John 1.14 is compassion. Friends, there's no parallel anywhere else in the world's religion to the sympathetic presence of God in Christ experiencing the human struggle with us. Here is where the gospel, friends, speak with universal relevance. To us, people who have rebelled against Him, turned our backs on Him, who have fought against God, that he would still have compassion and mercy and say probably what's probably one of the most amazing verses of all the Bible, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Friends, you could read the words of Cicero, Socrates, Aristotle. You could listen to Dr. Phil and Oprah all you want. You, you can read BuzzFeed and TMZ, and you'll never find more beautiful words than this. And sometimes even in our churches, you don't hear that. You're told, be better, try harder, be good. And we forget that it's grace. It's all grace. The only condition we see is, are you weary? And are you tired of carrying that heavy burden? If you are, God says, I'll give you rest. You see, God becoming flesh just didn't, just didn't just give dignity to our human existence. He brought compassion. And we see that on Christmas morning. Fourth and finally, the last thing we get from John 14 
is adoration. The hymn writer B.R. Hanby captures it well in his, his, his hymn, his carol, Who is He in Yonder Stall? Maybe you're familiar with it. Here are the words. Who is He in Yonder Stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? It's the Lord. A wondrous story that God would become man, the creator, his creation, the infinite become an infinite. Tis the Lord, king of glory, at his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. It's a command. Crown him, Lord of all. The reality of what Christmas morning is, friends, this morning, that God would become man to save us, to value us, to identify with us. Guys, it's just... I mean, it assaults, it assaults the mind, and it just staggers the imagination that this is what's taking place. But as this hymn, as this carol points out, as, as amazing that it is to our minds and our imagination, the appropriate response is in our hearts to be led to worship. Friends, Christmas morning, Christmas is many things to many people, but the main thing Christmas is, is worship. That's, that's why we're here. That's why on Christmas Sunday, we're not going to stop meeting, because that's what Christmas is. After all, don't we say he's the reason for the season? I think that applies even when the season lands on a Sunday, right? doesn't change. It's about worship, not traditions, although those are nice to have. It's not about giving of gifts, although that is a reflection of what God has done in Christ. It's not even about family, although because of what Christ has done, we all together can be sons and, God, sons and daughters in the family of God. First and foremost, it is about worship because that's what this day represents. The king came, humble as a man, as a child, to, to deliver us, and that's what we celebrate. He came because he loves us. That's what puts the Mary in Christmas. Well, I'm going to pray right now. The praise team is going to come up, and I'm going to send us out with a benediction as Greg and the team sing us out. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we might celebrate Christmas, the birth of your Son. As John so beautifully puts it, the Word became flesh and we have seen the glory, glory as of the only begotten of God. Lord, for all that Christmas is, and it is a wonderful time to celebrate, to be with family, to have those traditions, help us to worship as well. Help not our holidays, our culture that is so as Francis Schaeffer would say, haunted by Christ, that we imbibe the values but forget the beliefs that created them. Father, help us to combine both the beliefs and the values that our witness for you might be all the more stronger. We thank you for this day. We thank you for Christmas Day, Christmas morning, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.